The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about privacy as trust, and we have a wonderful professor coming to us all the way from New York. And let me just tell you the name of, of his book. It's called Privacy as Trust, Information Privacy for an Information Age by Ari Ezra Waldman. Uh, Ari is a professor of law and the director of the Innovation Center for Law and Technology at New York Law School. He is the founder and director of the Institute for Cyber Safety, which includes the first-of-its-kind law school pro bono clinic representing victims of online harassment, which is growing all the time. He holds a Ph.D. from Columbia University, a J.D. from Harvard Law School, and a B.A. from Harvard College. Professor Waldman is an internationally recognized thought leader on privacy and online safety. You can find out more about him at our website at privacypiracy.org, where you'll see his picture, his bio. We link to his website, Ari, A-R-I-E, for his middle name, waldman.com. So thank you so much, Ari, for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, I have your wonderful book here, and I oh, want to know, you. yeah, and, I have, and I've been reading it. I want to know why you decided to call it Privacy is Trust. Well, trust is essential for social interaction. We, uh, we base almost every interaction with another person, including disclosure of personal information, on expectations of trust, that other people are going to behave with confidentiality and discretion. So, for example, you might share a PIN or your Social Security number with a loved one, or you might share your intimate sexual secrets with a, with a sexual partner. Uh, you share this information in context of trust. And I, during my doctoral studies, uh, I, in which I focused on sociology, I started asking myself, there is a whole ton of information that we share with at least some other people, whether it's information that we disclose to one other person, to just our friends or our family, or information that we disclose to a website for a particular purpose. And the law as it stands today is not built to protect those disclosures. So I figured and started thinking about a project in which I would want to answer this one particular question. How can we protect, as private, 
information that is known by at least some other people. Because sometimes we want to keep information from the world, even though we might want to share it with one person or another person or 10 people. And trust is a tool that we can rely on in, that we rely on in, in everyday life to allow us to disclose information while maintaining expectations of discretion. So if the law of privacy started protecting and orienting itself toward protecting relationships of trust, we would be able to disclose information and not lose our privacy rights in the process. Right, right. It's, you know, I was thinking, you know, it's like we trust our doctor to tell our doctor things that maybe we would not even tell our significant other, right? That's so, exactly right. Yeah. Which shows, yeah, which shows that this, this, this concept of trust and privacy is already embedded in law. Lawyers know very well concepts of uh, privilege, doctor-patient privilege, right. spousal privilege. All of that is premised on the idea of trust and the, the, desi the, the desire to encourage socially beneficial disclosures. Fiduciary law, same thing. It's based on this concept of trust. Privacy law should be the same thing. Exactly. So, so let's talk a little bit about how does privacy even relate to freedom, you know? Mm. Uh, because I think if I don't have any privacy and if I can't trust my government, or I can't trust my doctor, or I can't trust my my loved one. Um, I I don't have any freedom either, do I? If that's I don't, exactly, that's exactly right. Privacy is an essential element of autonomy and freedom in a democratic society, and there are a whole host of ways that that's true. So, first, um, there are great sociological studies that show that uh, the perception of surveillance. Uh, restricts behavior. So if you ever go outside on a lovely day and have lunch on a plaza in front of a building, uh, there are studies that show that if people just paste up on the wall plastic, although plastic, uh, very uh, convincing looking cameras, they're not connected to anything, no one's actually watching, they're just plastic cameras that are taped up to the wall, People think they're being surveilled, and then they spend less time on the plaza, they, keep, they turn their back, they don't talk as much, and they uh, quickly eat their lunch and they leave. It affects our behavior, and if we knew we were being surveilled and felt that we were being surveilled 24-7, which, by the way, we, we are every time we go <laughs> online, right. we would, it, we, it would affect our autonomy and our ability to act as we, as we want. In other ways, um, Danielle Citron is publishing an article in – Danielle Citron is a professor at the University of Maryland, soon to be at Boston University. She's publishing an article in the Yale Law Journal entitled Sexual Privacy, which is this idea that uh, our, the privacy over our intimate selves, our, any, everything from our bodies to our sexual identities to our sexual habits and so forth – is essential for our ability to engage with others freely. If we don't have control over our bodies, we don't have control over our experiences. Privacy also allows us to think of dissident thoughts. This is Dan, uh, Neil Richards' idea of intellectual privacy. Mm -hmm. If we had to think about things and talk about things always under surveillance of society, we would never think about things that are different from the norm or different from the, the crowd. Privacy allows us to come up with ideas that may be dissonant or at least inchoate ideas that are not fully formed. So in these and in so many other ways, privacy is essential for freedom. And trust is essential for freedom as well 
because we don't operate for us, don't operate in a world where trust is protected. Uh, our social lives are paralyzed, paralyzed. We can't even leave the house because so much of our lives is based on uh, expectations that people will behave a certain way. Right. So they all kind of go together. That's what I was thinking when I was reading your book, is I was thinking there's there's trust, there's freedom. All of these things are so interrelated and that we, um, if we, you know, like they always have these things, would you trust this person to buy, you know, to buy a car from them? You know, the, the joke about that is that, you know, trust is so important in everything. And mm-hmm. especially with privacy, if I want to give my, my sensitive information. And I was thinking about, um, I have Alexa, right, in mm. my family room. And um, I'll say something. I'll say my daughter's name, Alyssa, and Alexa will wake up. (laughs) (laughs) And then I, you know, then I worry like, oh, my God, you know, I'm talking and all of a sudden she's waking up. I mean, it's great for me to say, hey, you know, I had a hard day. Alexa, play spa music, right? That's great. (laughs) But then when Alexa, then I think, oh, my gosh, what else is being recorded about what I'm saying in my own family room, right? Yeah, one of the interesting things that I think are important things that I think we need to recognize about technology and its design, with Alexa being a perfect example, but there are many others, is that we are the technologies are designed in such a way as to elicit disclosure from us, uh, because that's how these technologies get better, and that's how these companies that build these technologies make their money. That's how Facebook makes its money. It wants right. more information in order to sell ads. So what do, we, what do companies do in order, to, in order to make us feel comfortable to share information? Well, they build technologies that, that elicit uh, expectations of trust. They, uh, make, they design websites that make, it, make us feel like we're uh, engaging with a the community. They build tools that use our name that sound, uh, that sound like they're comfortable friends. and yeah. social. <laughs> and they make us feel like there's nothing different between talking with our spouses and our loved ones and talking to a machine, except there is a data-hungry corporation behind Mm. that machine's facade. One of the greatest examples of this is what we call social robots. And social robots is something that the psychologist or the social scientist Sherry Turkle has written about, Ryan Kahlo at the University of Washington has written about. Social robots are machines, robots, that are programmed through AI, to interact with us on a social level. So they respond to our sadness, our happiness, and they're used in certain contexts where that could be helpful, like to help children who have autism engage in social environments. So there are robots that are designed to look like little boys or little girls. In nursing homes, they've designed adorable social robots in the forms of baby seals, which are incredibly cute. If you've ever seen a picture of a baby seal yeah. uh, on Google Images, and these this it, these adorable or fun or social facades give people the impression that this is something that you can trust. But what's happening, despite some of the some of the uh, palliative benefits of these machines is that companies are taking our information. They're learning about us. They're helping us. It's helping feed natural language processing algorithms. It's encouraging us to upload pictures of our photos on Instagram. Uh, It's encouraging us to share information that help companies learn and then charge more money for advertisements or perfect their technologies that create virtual pictures of ourselves which can have significant privacy and autonomy implications. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I get caught in that too on Facebook. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, even we, though, I mean, I don't put certain things up there. Like I don't, you know, have my birthday and my birth year with all that. But, you know, I have a lot of stuff on Facebook and I share with all my friends. So you've got this duality here of this is a way that like I had au pairs when my kids were young that were from Denmark. And now I see their kids, you know, mm-hmm. and I can mm-hmm. connect with them without making long distance phone calls and mm-hmm. I can have fun with them. So they're they're really tapping in to that that part of me that wants to to share. That's absolutely right. Social networking technologies tap into, as you say, in our innate social desire to share. We are social beings. But in the process of doing that, sure, they create conveniences. But they also design an environment that takes information from us even when we're not looking. So let's even set aside all of the Facebook scandals that prove that behind the facade of a social networking site, Facebook is, takes a cavalier approach to our data and doesn't really care about protecting it. That's right. Cambridge Analytica and so many, so many other things, right. including the FTC consent decree. But think about, think about how other tools are used to elicit our disclosure. Facebook is, Facebook's uh, platform and newsfeed is designed to encourage us to share information by even subtle design cues that show that that say above and below a post that Dave, Sarah, and Lily, and forty-five other of your friends also liked this, which encourages us to right, click buy on a, it. Mm-hmm. click on a picture or buy a product. But also, you may remember if you're on Instagram uh, a little bit ago, there was a popular meme going around called the Ten Year Challenge, which was perpetuated, uh, which was sent around, and people started to upload pictures of what they, a picture from 10 years ago and a picture today. Right. And what a perfect way to subtly perfect a facial recognition algorithm. Yes. Because now you have identified pictures of who is what and how people age over a, over a period of time. And, all, and this taps into a, an innate desire to share, but at the same time, weakens us and makes us more vulnerable to the companies that are collecting our data because now they know so much about us. Right, right. Oh, my God. So what, what's wrong or outdated then about how we think about privacy today? You know, I, I think about, you know, the original thought about privacy way back in the 1800s, you know, uh, was, you know, the right to be left alone, which has totally, you know, been expanded uh, with our information age. So what's, how are we outdated about the way we're thinking about privacy? The primary approach that law and policy today in the United States and still to a great degree in Europe for privacy is what we call notice and consent or notice and choice, right. the, and which is premised on an idea of control. The idea is that if a website or a platform gives you information about how they're going to use our data, uh, then they, that gives us all the information we ostensibly need in order to make a choice as to whether or not we want to share information. Mm -hmm. And then we can consent or choose whether to use that website and share that information or not. And you can see this manifest in a lot of different areas. Now we have cookie uh, dialog boxes that come up that say, do you want to use these cookies? Here is our cookie policy. If If you don't want, if you want to turn off cookies, here you can, or you can use a different website. This is also true in all of those um, here, read our, uh, read our privacy policy or our terms of service, then click OK, and then you can enter into our, 
um, enter into the website. This is also this idea of control or the idea of returning control to, of, of our information to, to us from websites is at the heart of the general data protection regulation in Europe as well. It's a consent-based regime that on the whole requires a lot more consents from people when companies want to share our data. Right. Uh, and also we see this in policy and policy debates. When Mark Zuckerberg testified before the Senate, he used the word control and talked about returning control to users 54 times in his testimony. And that's, that, show, goes, that shows just how far this idea of privacy as control or the idea that we should have the right to determine for ourselves who has access to our data, how far that's gone. Not only is it embedded, is notice and choice embedded in so many of the privacy laws we have in this country and in Europe, but it's in our, it's in our legal consciousness. It's what we think the law requires. And that is entirely inadequate for so many reasons, not only because privacy policies are incredibly unhelpful. No one can read them. They're way <laughs> right. too long, and they're, they're legalese documents, and no one has the time or even – and no one has the time to read them, and even experts find them misleading, as uh, scholars like Joel Reidenberg at Fordham have, have found before. But even if we could, even if we could – interrogate those privacy policies. We don't always have a choice. Right. There are monopolies online and and we can't always get we don't always have access to legit alternatives that allow us to avoid information sharing. Plus a consent-based regime is incredibly difficult. Woodrow Hartzog who just published a book uh, called Privacy's Blueprint, he makes a point, and he's a professor at Northeastern, he oh. makes a point of saying that we ask too much of consent. And what he means by that, and I very much agree, what he means by that is that, yes, it's entirely possible for us to navigate to every one of our apps on our phones and every uh -huh. website uh -huh. and toggle off uh, information sharing if the option is given. But Notice how many apps you have on your phone or how many websites you visit right. a day. We're talking hundreds and right. hundreds of options, right. which, as, psych as psychologists know, leads to exhaustion. Right. And I'm doing some work with uh, the psychologist Jim Morey at DePaul University Business School showing how this kind of choice exhaustion results in the sense of giving up or nihilism. Right. And that's how companies get us. They overuse, and uh, the law allows them to overuse choice and consent to get us to just give up and seed our information, even if we don't want to. Yeah. Well, I want to get to your trust-based approach, because I think, you know, we, we have time. We have about another 10 minutes, and I, I know that's the, one, that's the meat of what I really want to have you explain. So let's talk a little bit about this trust-based approach and how that would be different from the consent and the choice and, and you know, the, the privacy principles. Sure. So a trust-based approach is premised on the idea, and I argue this in the book, that we entrust, we cede or give over our information, not uh, willy-nilly and not forever in perpetuity, but we entrust our data to other people, to companies, for some reason, for some benefit, for 
a particular role that those other entities are playing in our lives, whether it's allowing us to connect with others, whether it's to fulfill our innate social desires, whether it's to per pursue online banking, which we, which, we, uh, which we certainly have to in this day and age. Right. So if we, if we recognize that we entrust our data to other people and to other entities, and these entities hold themselves out as experts at whether it's dating apps that put us together with, with matches, or it's a website that's going to find us sales of, on clothes that we're interested in. These companies are uh, entrusted with our data to the point that they should be acting in our interest, or at a minimum, not to our detriment. Right. So if we see the relationship between trust and sharing is as trust inspire sharing or sharing exists in context of trust, then privacy is really what protects those contexts of, those contexts of socially beneficial sharing. Here's a great example of that. Think about an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Mm -hmm. An Alcoholics Anonymous meeting is a group of relative strangers getting together. It could be 10, it could be 100 of them. And they, they know exactly one thing about them, that they share a stigmatizing social identity of having a complicated relationship with alcohol. And yet they share a whole lot of information with others as part of a socially beneficial disclosure as they work through their issues and they work through and, and uh, work through their issues in a meeting. So they are entrusting to other people this identity, their information that they're, that, uh, that they're alcoholics or that they're in AA. And as a result, they expect discretion and they also expect that people will help them, that that's the whole point of sharing in these, in these environments. Right. Now, what does that look like in policy? If we turn that sociological theory and the sociological approach to sharing, what does that look like in policy? Well, if we treated, uh, if we treated websites, that, websites and other platforms that collect our data as fiduciaries of that data, then we would have a very different and much more protective environment online. And... Scholars like Jack Balkin and Jonathan Zittrain have proposed this. I proposed it in the book. And in fact, uh, Brian Schatz, a Democratic senator from Hawaii, has proposed in legislation this idea of information fiduciaries in the Data Care Act. The Data Care Act was introduced at the end of the last session of Congress and has about 10 to 15 Democratic co-sponsors. The idea is that it would create uh, uh, some form of fiduciary obligations on companies, on some companies that collect our data, to make sure that they're not using it to our detriment, using our data to our detriment, and that would be very different than uh, than a notice and choice regime in a lot of different ways. And in the book, I go through several case studies when we're talking about online harassment, a fiduciary approach or a trust-based approach would allow us to allow give companies a legal incentive to moderate out harassing and hateful content. Mm -hmm. It would also give us a tool, a private right of action, using the tool of breach of confidentiality, which we don't normally use in this country. Um, it would create stronger relationships or stronger obligations from websites to individuals that would make it more likely that we would share information in particular contexts. And it would also give us, it would also give the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, which is our consumer watchdog here, the power to regulate companies that use false trust, that attempt to use design to trick us into sharing information, which now the FTC is only starting to do. 
Right. Well, isn't that similar to like what we're concerned about, whether who owns the data, like under your regime, it's we own the data. It's our personal data, but aren't a lot of these companies and isn't the way we've been going in our country that once they get the data, that the companies own the data? Isn't that been the problem? Well, I think part of the problem outside of technical ownership, part of the problem when it, when it comes to privacy is that once we share information with at least with, with just one other person, a lot of courts say that, well, we have no privacy interest in it anymore because the information is out there. There are lots of tort cases, for example, that show that, that say that because someone uh, shared a piece of information, whether it was um, something about uh, w- whether it was an, a, a, uh, a piece of information that they shared with friends or something that they were wearing, or just by virtue of going out in public, that therefore that there is no privacy interest in anything because one other person knows it. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly a problem when torts like public disclosure and intrusion upon seclusion have a threshold as a requirement that the information disclosed was originally private. And a lot of courts say that, well, if you shared it with one other person, it's no longer private. Ownership aside, the idea is, the problem is that we cannot live in a world anymore where the law sees a single, sometimes constructively necessary disclosure in order to go about social life as, a, as, a, as, an, as an incident that destroys privacy rights. Because so much of our lives, so much of our information is in the hands of third parties. If we want to rescue privacy, we need to take it back from this absurd notion that merely going outside your home is an information-sharing event that eviscerates your privacy rights. Right. So what has been um, really the response to this, this new bill? I mean, I would imagine that there's an outcry by all these companies for the Data Care Act. What, what has been going on? Do you know? What's interesting is that this bill was introduced in the wake of the California Consumer Privacy Act being passed by the state of California last session. And the California Consumer Privacy Act is a GDPR-like law. It goes further. It has yes. some significant changes, uh, but I won't go into those for lack of time at this moment. Right. But it was a significant strict law that could have a significant impact on how companies uh, think about privacy and how they integrate privacy into the design of their products. In reaction to that, lots of companies who had before never wanted any privacy legislation suddenly became infatuated by the idea of a federal privacy law because they wanted it to preempt state uh, privacy laws. They didn't have the opportunity to lobby the California legislature because that bill was written in about two weeks. Well, it started Uh, out as an initiative. That's why. Exactly. And it started (laughs) as an initiative. So in order to preempt the initiative, the California legislature moved very quickly on it. Which was smart by them. Exactly. (laughs) Now what these companies are hoping is that if if Congress works on federal privacy legislation, they can get their teeth into it and weaken it. And if they preempt the California law, then they can have one week privacy statute. So the opposition to this law has been, well, it doesn't include preemption. And it doesn't include preemption. And that's, I, I think, a good thing because yes. there are, we, these laws can work in parallel. But, but we're going to see, I, I think, staking out 
a position at the beginning is important because that's going to kind of move the Overton window when we talk about what federal privacy legislation should be. Well, that's a perfect way to end. I just love it. Thank you so much. I just want to mention your book again, Privacy is Trust, Information Privacy for an Information Age, and give your website, and then it's time for us to go. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really appreciate and really enjoyed this conversation. Again, if if anyone is interested in learning more, my book, Privacy is Trust, is available on Amazon, and also you can check out my website at A-R-I- E. Waldman, W-A-L-D-M-A-N.com. Well, we will keep in touch, and I hope to have you back again. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Have a great day. You too. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.